Support for this podcast comes from Simply Faster. Simply Faster provides in-depth articles covering speed training, sport science, and the use of technology in sport. Authored by high school, collegiate, and professional track and field and strength and conditioning coaches. Make sure to check them out at simplyfaster.com. Welcome to episode 100 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring Dr. Tony Strudwick, head of performance at Manchester United Football Club. A big thank you to Tony's role of the New York Red Bulls and Michael Macri for placing me in touch with Dr. Strudwick. In 2009, British author and motivational speaker Simon Sinek published the bestseller Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. In it, he describes the golden circle of what, how, and why. He noted that most individuals and organizations are able to understand what they do. Some understand how they do it, but very few people know their why. Sinek defines why as a person's or organization's belief or purpose. It is those individuals or organizations that have an understanding of why that more than likely become innovators in their respective field, such as Dr. Tony Strudwick. Hence, this is where I begin. In a time when sports science was in its infancy, during the mid to late 1990s, in the United Kingdom with Dr. Strudwick working out of an old rundown shack at Coventry City, why did he choose to explore sports science and believe that it would revolutionize football? Well, physical education was always quite, quite prevalent back in, the, back in the 80s and 90s, particularly at Loughborough University. And historically, Loughborough University was, was, was a teacher training college. So they had uh, some, some excellent tutors there and, and lecturers there. And uh, f- for me, my... My formative years were pretty much spent playing playing a lot of football, so I guess it was the football component that that really got me hooked on the sport. Obviously, being being a fouled footballer, not quite good enough to 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 be a professional footballer or or pursue a career. I was far too slow and nowhere near good enough. So so essentially, the next best thing for me was to to, to study sport and performance and 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 really keep using the football as the hook. So. Essentially, it was a football that was a hook and it was a sports science that I really wanted to, I had a passion for, for wanting to, to understand more about how the body works, how the mind works and how we can apply scientific principles to essentially improve performance. And I think that was that was always from the offset. It wasn't necessarily sports science for the sake of sports science per se. It was more about, well, let's look at improving performance and in particular, I, I guess, football stroke soccer performance. Dr. Strudwick joined Manchester United in 2007. For the next six years, he had the opportunity to work with one of the greatest and most successful managers of all time in Sir Alex Ferguson. This is where we start our conversation today, before delving into his current role as head of athletic development at Manchester United and the future challenges he expects sports scientists to face in the coming years. Enjoy the conversation. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Historic Performance Podcast. Today I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Tony Strudwick. Dr. Strudwick, how are you doing today? Yeah, very good, James. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. So I heard uh, through the grapevine, and I was talking to Brett Utley, who I had on, on the podcast, and he worked under Dave Tenney. During a conversation with, with the Seattle Sounders staff, uh, Dave mentioned that when he came to visit, uh, one of the best working relationships that he saw in high performance football was the one that you had with 
Sir Alex Ferguson and Renee Molstein. Um, what is it that made that relationship so unique when it came to the planning execution of the tactical, technical and physical sessions? Firstly, I think that the, the time that I started uh, here at Manchester United was, was 2007. And, and what you, you had that evolved over for so many time, so many years under Sir Alex's tenure was, was, a, was an unbelievable bunch of not only talented players, but also players that were driven, driven to, to want to want to achieve and perform. So, you know, Ryan Giggs was here, Paul Scholes, Gary Neville. So the culture was in place. Beyond that, what what made that that the working relationship with Sir Alex and and uh, and Carlos Quiros, I mean, my first year anyway, was, was just a level of trust for sports scientists to be successful, and or any fitness coaches or, or practitioners to be successful, you've got to have a level of trust. You know, my first time a job, Sir Alex. Went in to meet Sir Alex really, really early. As you do, you you, you arrive at the training ground two hours before everybody else. But it, it was it was a simple conversation. Sir Alex said that the players are downstairs. Go and do your thing. And I think that that was really that level of empowerment and level in trust. What that does as a practitioner, it makes you, you, you know, it, it keeps you engaged. So I think it was the trust was was the first thing. Secondly, that the, they had a system. I won't call it a model. Uh, I'll call it a system stroke template of training in place that was that was really that, that organically evolved over a number of years with Sir Alex and Carlos Quiros, who, who Carlos Quiros was a Portuguese coach, had subsequently been the, the, the Portuguese national coach and is now working out in uh, Iran, I believe. And uh, it was a very, very simple strategy. It was a combination of tactical periodization and physiological periodization in terms of how we structure the day, how we integrate all the different components, technical, tactical, physical, in, in, into our weekly program. So that, that model was, was, was thriving, really, and I just came into that. Upon Carlos's departure, he went to the national team of Portugal. Rennie then took over along with Mick Phelan. And, and, and what we did, we, we just had a, a common understanding amongst the staff. We didn't have a huge staff. So decision making was, was really was quite confined to, to a small number of people, which I think ultimately, you know, look at some advanced sports science models nowadays and, and conditioning models nowadays. And I think invariably you, you have too many staff. So it was a very tight group. Obviously, Sir Alex was 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 the head coach, stroke manager who who picked the team, and that was his responsibility. But we all had really clearly defined roles. We would meet every day. We would discuss the the, the training training plan where we're at. And our job, really, from a sports science perspective, was pretty simple. Just just ensure that the players are physically ready to cope with the demands of of not only challenging for the Premier League, but across three three different trophies: the Champions League and, and obviously the, the domestic cup. So that was pretty clear in that. And I think what we we try to do in, in in year one really, and we got immeasurable success in in our first season. We won the Premier League and and the Champions League, but that wasn't necessarily down to the sports science component. But what what we tried to do over time was evolve the system even further. So Sir Alex is is had a very simple philosophy in terms of carrying a, a large number of number of players. So I think Sir Alex wanted to carry about twenty six players. So essentially, that's two teams. So our job really was to to create a, a model of performance that that ensured every player was was pretty f- physically prepared to come into the team when they needed to be. So that in itself take, takes 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 uh, some managing. We did over time over the next two years. We really sort of evolved this sports science model. We had a relationship with with, with John Moore's University and the late Professor Tom Riley. So the essence of our, our conditioning was, was based on solid physiological principles there was no there was no sort of bs around that 
Uh, we didn't try and advertise the fact that we, we've got the the, the one one size fits all approach model. We we launched it, we iterated it year on year, and it just evolved. So when Dave Tenney came in, I think he probably would have come in around 2010. He probably he saw that well into its sort of uh, evolvement and and where we were at then was was very good. We had a we had an increase in staff support. We managed to recruit some excellent people in, in Dr. Richard Hawkins and, and Dr. Gary Walker. And uh, that was really the small team, the physiological team that's around that. Uh, and obviously, beyond that, Rennie and myself and the coaches, Mick Phelan and even the goalkeeper coach, we were in the same office together. We we shared a lot of you know experiences together. And I think that's where it was a, it was a one team culture it wasn't necessarily that the, the fitness coach or the sports scientist work working in silos we were actually impacting the coaching process james and i think that's really that was success for us because we were in with the coaches we were impacting the, the coaching process every single day it was a consistent model we were very consistent in our decision making and we kept it relatively simple so that was really how the communication worked now beyond that I think we we created a brand of sports science and conditioning that was very intuitive and, and very player centered. It wasn't a case of, you know, enforcing what we felt was, was was sports science onto players. It was working on an individual level as well as a group level and ensuring that each of these players was supported across all the different areas of of conditioning and, and, and support. So over time, really, Richard Hawkins is very detailed. He's got a great attention to detail, very, very number driven. So so Richard would, would be right on top of where every player is at from a, from a loading perspective and a recovery perspective. Gary complimented, Gary Walker complimented the work in, in a gymnasium. And again, I think, you know, when, when a system breaks down, James, it, it, it can be because the S&C coaches are working off piece or the sports scientists are working on their own, but we're all in it together. And I think that's probably, that was probably the strength of the system. We, we were all connected and, and joined up because it was quite a tight, tight, tight knit unit. So I think that was probably what Dave was referring to when he said it was quite evolved. Yeah, I, I recently listened to uh, the talk that you gave at Catapult. They recently put the video up and you were discussing how, in retrospect, perhaps you wouldn't have grown the, the staff as large as you did. And that you see that being a bit of an issue now with certain high performance teams. Yeah. In saying that, we did have, uh, we brought in Robin Thorpe and, and the way that we did it six, seven years ago, that we didn't just want to bring interns in because I think I, I love the concept of internship, but I, I wasn't comfortable with just bringing a member of staff in for one year and then moving them on. I didn't think that was right for the organization. I didn't think that was right for the individuals. So we hooked in in Robin Thorpe to, to run our uh, our recovery and, and our monitoring strategy. And he did a terrific job in that. I think beyond that, I think beyond that three or four, I don't necessarily think you need that many more staff. And I think the more the more units there are to a, to, to a staff and you, you can get potential leaks and uh, you're not as connected. So I think it's, I would put a probably cap at four, four members of the team uh, to support around 26 players. Now within that, James, we had, a, we had an enormous amount of, data that we were collecting we were one of the first teams really to uh, to go with uh, gps uh, load monitoring so we had all that kind of information coming in but what we managed to do was, was, was filter out roles and responsibilities and i think that's that's the key really to high performance organizations to have a really clearly defined set of set of roles and responsibilities and then obviously when you're in the office every day and you know, i think part of so alex's mantra is that we very rarely got days off it was about one or two per month so 
pretty much you're really, really consumed in, in, in the training process and the coaching process. And again, when, when you're working with 26 players, you, you needed you need an extra pair of eyes, two or three pairs of eyes. You, you needed eyes and ears in the gym to ensure that that was aligned to what we we're doing on the grass. And, and beyond that, I think it, it was just having a clear framework in, in how we do things, how we train. So it didn't really change for six or seven years. That that that, that, that player's journey into the training ground, out the tra- that didn't really, really change. So coming back to your original question about expansion of, of services, I think, I think people have, have assumed that you know, we need specialists in recovery. We need a we need a specialist in in load monitoring. We need a, a specialist in analytics. And I think you've just got to be careful and 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 cap that number of staff because before you know it, it just it just grows out of control and uh, you, you're not a connected connected team anymore. The second follow up question I have that before we move on to youth athletic development, which has been your your main focus uh, for the last several years, is you mentioned that. Each single year, you try to analyze and then grow upon the model performance. What were the things that you were looking at from the previous year in in terms of how you could uh, expand upon what you currently had? Well, one of my earlier jobs with uh, when I went into West Ham, or oh, blimey, many years ago, 2003, and I think uh, one of Alan Pardew's key mantras that every year you, you need to try and show the players that you are evolving, you're innovative and you're changing the environment. So I've always been pretty conscious that you finish one season and when the players come back the next season, it needs to look a little bit differently, even if it's really, really minor changes in that player flow. So it may well be that when we first started, some of our our sports science monitoring systems and things that are in place were, became outdated. We moved on. We didn't allow the players to to become too complacent with certain things. So it was always a little thing, just a little iteration year on year to to, to let the players know that, yeah, look, we, we are evolving this, guys. We, we're going to stick with what works, but we we want to be conscious of, of what's out there really where we want to be pushing pushing human performance and that process in itself that that innovation process is really really important because because we had so many guys that were, were that had a, a had a research background an academic background we could challenge the next gimmick that came across the desk we could challenge the next you know whatever that kind of periodization model was that 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 the, the one social commentator we put out, we would challenge it based on science, and then and then we'd give it a go. We weren't we weren't necessarily we didn't have any any reservations about trying something new. And I think that that also came back to the level of trust and empowerment that that, that Sir Alex put within the department. So we we did try different things, you know, year on year. We wanted to create a new. Uh, a, a new recovery monitoring area for the players that was right in, in, in the central part of the building where, where the player flow would be. We we wanted to to build on the concept of, of this performance lab that wasn't necessarily a room, room per se where players would go in and get tested for the sake of getting tested, but it was about asset management and it was about players buying into you know extending their careers. And I think that was also 
what was so good about the staff at the time, you know, Richard, Gary and Robin, is that you know, it was continuous feedback to the players and it, that that's how you got that level of engagement. It was, OK, if you're going to test and monitor and ask the players to, to push the boundaries of performance, then, then, then you've got to feedback the why. And I think that was the, the interesting thing for us is that, you know, that constant communication, why we're doing these things, why we're changing things and, and so on and so forth. I remember in in, in the year that we, we we won the the Champions League, we we had a big push towards hydration because at the time we you know it, it seemed to be quite quite on vogue. We were travelling in Europe and and we just wanted to get wanted to create a tipping point. So for for me that was the tipping point of sports science. It was getting the players to take an interest in, in where they're at from a hydration level. I mean subsequently we dropped that after two or three years. But what it what it did allow us to do was hook the players into a way of you know, just buying into the process. And that came about, you know, we visited the, the Milan lab, the concept of the Milan lab and, you know, whatever happened to the Milan lab, whether it lost its impetus or, or, or whether the players in the end just, just weren't prepared to buy into it. We were very conscious that we had to, 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 to keep sort of iterating what we did really to keep the players engaged and fresh. Dr. Sherwick, for the, for the last uh, several years, your focus has been youth athletic development. Manchester United has produced some um, amazing individuals when coming out of the academy. What is the Manchester United philosophy when it comes to athletic development and building robustness? Yeah, I think the, the Manchester United philosophy has always been around about producing you know, a holistic approach to player development. So whether that's across technical, tactical, physical, and I guess the science, you have a component to that. But I think where I'm at now and, and and where I see the future of what what the requirements of society and physical education in or lack of physical education in, in, in society generally is that I think we have a very, very simple mantra of, you know, make the players hard to break. I think there are really four key areas around that. The first thing will be maximize availability. For me, that the most important ability is, is availability. So the ability to train on a regular basis, to sustain regular training, to sustain work rate, I think that's very, very important. So we are now looking at ways really to, to ensure that our games program is sufficient enough to, to prepare the players without overloading them, but they need to be exposed to periods where there are intense, tense period, periods, fixture periods where, where we, we want that level of availability. I think the second one that, that I think whether it's sports science or that this whole area of specificity, we, we seem to have gone away from this concept of the, the ability to repeat work, so work capacity. So if the first important physical characteristic is availability, the second for me is work capacity, the ability of, of, of players to, to work high, high intensity and to repeat that and to build that, that level of capacity. I guess the third, the third thing around that is, is movement movement capabilities and over in the US in terms of your movement programs and, and, and so on and so forth. I think think you're probably leading the way out there and we, we, we plan a little bit of catch up, but players have to demonstrate the appropriate movement capabilities. Now, whether that's, you know, one, one, one way we're addressing the shortfall in movement capabilities is really to, to, to ensure that we have a multi-sport program that it is delivered through our curriculum. So from nines right up to 16, we will integrate uh, periods of multi-sport. 
So whether that's gymnastics, whether that's parkour, we've had taekwondo, we've had uh, even down to boxing, which, which which I guess kills two birds with one stone in terms of developing work capacity and movement. Now, you could challenge the, the fact that there's not a level of specificity there, but what we're in the, the job of doing is, is creating robust individuals. So that, that's that's very, very important. And I guess the, the final piece of the jigsaw, James, is really about power development. Uh, and that really is that, you know, it's very much when we have the group sessions to develop, I guess, work capacity and, 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 and movement. We'll also have the individual individual sessions to really to, to increase power output. So that that will be lab or, or test driven. So each player will have an individual program based on you know their power output. We've had some really really good gains. We we've we brought some some. We've increased our, our service provision down through the academy, and we've had some huge gains in, in in one year. It's very much labor intensive, very much load driven, particularly at the 1920s, 20s level. We have uh, uh, Dr. Mark Holst, who I've worked with before, Mark, and uh, his his mantra is definitely you know, uh, I guess a philosophy of, 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 of workload and work capacity. So pretty much our guys are, are in the gym or, or doing some kind of physical conditioning most days of the week. So it is, it is quite labor intensive, which may be different to, to certainly, you know, some of the models in, in Southern Europe and, and even across the Premier League. So to recap, really, that model really is make them hard to break. It's about increasing resilience through ensuring that you know that we get availability uh, and exposure we're increasing work capacity we're increasing or we're working on work capacity we're working on that that movement quality and the final piece around that uh will be you know that, that that individual power development when you talk about work capacity throughout that curriculum how does one build upon it every single year to ensure that that each player's work capacity is increasing. Yeah, I think, and I think that's where the monitoring is so so important, really, in youth development. Now, it's not just a measure of surveillance; it's ensuring that you know we accept that 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 journey from from youth to professional and and, and high performance. It's not a linear model, James. You know, there's a lot, and Manchester United are really have been really really good. We've got a lot of coaches that have been in the system a lot of years, and you know. We'll give players time. We're monitoring when they're going through 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 periods of growth and so on and so forth. And you know, we have a strategy of playing players up an age group to, to make sure they're stressed. We have a we have a strategy of of holding players back. So, for example, Jesse Lingard at sixteen stroke seventeen played down a year because because he was a late developer. And uh, the same thing for Michael Keane and, and both players are playing in the national team at the moment. So the coaches have always been and that was always been coach led. All we've, we've managed to do is make sure we put a bit of science to that. But if we start to record where players are at from essentially twelve right the way through to sixteen, we want this kind of step change in. Uh, in, in training load. So the idea really is that, you know, that, that there's, a, that there's a program for the under 12s that looks different from the under 13s, it looks different from the under 14s, 15s, and so on and so forth, right the way up through to our, to our under 23 squad. So I guess it's, it's a top-down approach, but also a bottom-up approach. But I guess the, the, the key thing around that is making sure that we're monitoring exposure, training and games, making sure that what players get at 12 year old is more multi-sport, you know, more more sort of general motor skills, 
rather than you know and as they as they work up that way that they're working more towards you know the, the specific requirements of what we need need at senior level football the, the key to that james is really a1 having having i guess quite a flexible and agile curriculum in place but also making sure that you're connected with the coaches and and uh, we've had, we, we, like I say, we've, we've had a great buy-in from the coaches, and I think everybody's joined up with with a common terminology there. The other area I want to expand upon is uh, power development, and you said that it's lab-driven. Could you expand upon that a, a bit more in terms of uh, what you're looking at um, in terms of each individual player? And I'm not sure if you're able to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, I think what 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 we do is that Richard Hawk, Dr. Richard Hawkins drives that process essentially from from the age of fifteen. The, the players will undergo a series of, of uh, reactivity power output tests. That, that essentially we've been developing club standards for for for, for eight to ten years. So when we bring an under fifteen in, we know that where that player sits compared to not only his his, his own age group and cohort, but also you know cl- across cl- all club standards. The classic jump test, uh, the power up during doing a false velocity curve, and then obviously beyond that, we'll, we'll identify what what are the strength requirements or the power developments to to, to move this player onwards and upwards. So it's very simple, uh, you know. It's a very simple method. It, it can be done. It can be applied at any time throughout the year. So that's really from that power output perspective that that's what we're working on. And beyond that, I think it, it's more about. We're building uh, into the actual sessions themselves. We're building in sort of sprint work, and, and that's all recorded during the session. So it's a continuous flow of information coming in to, to see where they're at from a performance level. And, and like I said before, I think we've got two excellent S&C coaches who, who, who really look at the information and, 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 and uh, make, make the programs individual from that perspective. So I think what we're trying to do is really encapsulate a, uh, a system that, that that really targets what each individual requirements are, and and working on not only the the, the opportunities and weaknesses, but also I, I guess you know, where the players are strong at is, is is make them even stronger in them areas. One area that I uh, recently heard you discussing was building learning environment that cater to Generation Y, and I'm gonna go with uh, Generation Z as well, um, based. <laughs> on some of the the research that I've done. So some of the the kids that you're dealing with now uh, and and you highlighted some of the work that has been done by Stephen Wheeler. Yeah, I think we, um, I mean, I'll I'll probably go back and and, and look at the the evolution really. I think, you know, when we look back in time, I think people will look at, well, okay, how how did great players evolve? And and we'll go back to what street football was and, and playing soccer in the streets and, and playing soccer in tight areas. And that, that's always been a, a, a pivotal part of the Manchester United way and the Manchester United philosophy. I think what, what we're trying to do now is that there's still an element of that within our programme and there always will be an element of that in our programme. But I think beyond that, we've got to look how can we engage with the modern learner. I guess some of the next transitions in, in, in academies and youth development will look at how can you create optimal learning environments and it's not just a coaching environment it really is about looking at the learner so we know that that the generations change we know there's a reliance on use of computers smart mobile you know young young people are more are more connected through through technology they're well networked and they also need a highly individual approach so 
it's looking outside the box to marry the, the, the new way of, of, of the learner and technology, how we embrace modern technology and create the right environment. So whether that will be through uh, video technology, whether that be through immediate feedback, whether that be through small group work um, and looking at uh, ways that, you know, how we can feedback match analysis to players that, that really is in tune with with how they want to learn, how our coaches can embrace technology, not necessarily for the sake of embracing technology, but how how can we accelerate that learning process? And I think that's really all academies now is very competitive, the academy system in, in England now, James. And I guess we're all looking for that competitive advantage. And I certainly feel that, yeah, we have to go back you know, to look at innovative ways really to for our players to learn the game from a technical, uh, not only a technical, but a tactical perspective. You know, we'll, we'll look at maybe maybe the use of drone technology, the use of video feedback, immediate feed, feedback and so on and so forth. We're very fortunate at Manchester United that some of our commercial partners like Epson have developed some mm. some really smart technology in, in, in audio-visual feedback for, 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 for people, for smart glasses and so on and so forth. So, I think that's going to be really, really important, marrying the old kind of sort of street football with, with the modern technology. And I think beyond that, you know, engaging young people and, and I guess communicating with them in ways that they want to be communicated with. So they expect fast results. They, they want variety because they get bored very, very quickly. Well, how can we engage that learner? Now, whether that's through sort of digital connect digital technologies that Steve Whelan talks about or whether that's through sort of connected learning, small group work, uh, small group work, you know, pre, 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 pre soccer training, during soccer training and, and definitely post, post training to consolidate the learning process. I think that's definitely going to be a way to maximize the learning experience. Question is out there is that how do you know as coaches that you're having, actually having an impact on the learning process? You know, learning learning is not something that is very experiential. You have to learn, and that's always been part of the Man United way, that experiential learning process. But my argument is that how do we know that the, the, these young players are actually learning what we want them to and, and they're actually taking out of it, out of the sessions of what, what we really want. So that's probably one, one of the, the next big pushes here is that, yes, we want, want to create an old school environment in terms of the gymnasium and gymnastic movements and and street football, but we also want to want to engage the, the modern technology because that's what the way that the modern learner is going to going to be want to be be engaged. Really, during a time period that street football is, you see it less and less. How are you ensuring that that is still part of of the of the Man United uh, philosophy or process that that part of street football? Yeah, well, well, like I said before, we actually have what we call a cage, which, for want of a better term, is. Uh, um, it, it's an area that, that's surrounded by boards. It's an astroturf area surrounded by boards and uh, and a roof. And what that does, that recreates the the, the, the speed of, of, of street football. You know, the ball never goes out of play, so you work in a, a fast level. Now, that's actually built into the training complex. So, and then we've got a mix, mixture of different different kind of surfaces. I think one of the problems, I guess, this whole sense of entitlement, really, the the, the resources and facilities in, in England academies is is, is uh, is magnificent compared to what it was but I think sometimes we have to flip that on his head and say well okay what's it like to play on, play on a play on a sand pitch what's it like to play on you know on an uneven pitch and I think it, 
that that's that's a challenge we have now is that you know playing with not necessarily a pristine soccer ball but but you know uh, a half flat ball and because that's the kind of experiences that that, that the our younger players would have had 20 years ago and uh, it's an interesting piece of work we're looking at, at the moment James well okay what was unique about the environment that that really that gave rise to the class of 92 you know at the time when gigs Neville skulls but David Beckham came through the system and it wasn't just about smart pitches. It wasn't just about, you know, good, 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 good facilities and, and programs and stuff. There was something beyond that, that, that we have to try and recreate. So that's built into the system. Uh, we ensure that that's the, that, that that's a big part of what we do, pod games, small, small sided games. But I guess the next bit to, to, to marry on to that is to make sure that, that that is also, also obviously transferred from a learning perspective in, into bigger areas and I think that's something that that really needs to be looked at is that the, the size of pitches and the size of areas because what we don't want is the same experience. And I think when we talk about learning, it's about learning a multitude of experiences about you know failure and iteration and, and moving on. So ensuring that our players are exposed diff- to, 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 to different environments, to, to tournament uh, experience to, to I guess stadium experience, but also this kind of street football because that that then gives them a you know an increased rep- repertoire of, of of executing you know decision making and, and I guess the, the element of skill. As I was doing uh, research for this podcast episode, um, I ran across a quote of yours uh, back in 2014, and. To, to say it is, the next biggest development will be in the area of cognitive research. As the game of football becomes even faster, we'll reach a plateau in terms of physical preparation. The ability of athletes to make quicker decisions in high-performance environments and the development of tools to stimulate areas of the brain that facilitate these processes will take the game onto another level, especially when it comes to technological advancements in the areas of vision and cognition. Um, so this was back in 2014. Do you still see this being the future, uh, cognitive research and technological advancements in the areas of vision and cognition? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think it, I think the way that if you look at really the evolution of, I mean, I, I guess the evolution of soccer goes around. It's quite a cyclical process, really, and that you know one team will be very, very successful. Everybody copies that that way that they play. But I think what you found, particularly. In the period of around about 2004 up to about 2010, you had, and we know this from from sort of match analysis and prozone data, we had almost like a 25% increase in in uh, in in, in high intensity running performance during during Premier League games. So we know the game's getting quicker. We know that players are being asked to uh, to work at high intensities that perhaps they didn't do back in the 90s. But I think beyond that, what we've got to look at is a you know where's the game going to go, and I think it's going to be about dynamic. You know, creating dynamic players that that, that are pretty astute in terms of tactical variations, flexible formations, and I guess that you know our job really is how can we create thinking players, and I think that that development is going to take a little bit more. Uh, it's going to be a bit more of a cerebral process in saying, well, okay, where's the individual at, and how can we maximise their, their their learning experience and and prepare them for different scenarios in a game. And I think it's about scenario planning. You know, I think a big part of of where we're going to go with all this is is that how do we get problem solving in, 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 into our weekly schedule? It's a very tight 
schedule. Bear in mind that everybody wants, you know, this whole sort of interdisciplinary approach of psychology and sports science and, and so on and so forth, so forth. So where can you fit that in? But I think the best players, that, 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 that certainly the, when we're talking about the top players, the Paul Scholes, the Ryan Giggs, the Cristiano Ronaldo's, they're problem solvers and they find solutions. So strip that back a little bit in, in youth development. How can we create more problem solvers? And for sure, that's got to be, the essence of that has got to be more in developing the cognitive side of the game. Because I think it, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty solid. We know that, you know, you have responders and non-responders in, in, uh, in, in terms of sort of genetics and, and where they can go from a physiological perspective. I actually think, you know, when you look at the, the elite player today, physically, they're very, very mature. Physically, you know, they can cope with, with high demands that, you know, like racehorses, albeit the challenge is, is for them to, 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 to do that week in, week out. But I think we're getting to a level where physically we're hitting the boundaries of human performance. I think the next step will certainly be, James, well, okay, how can we expose players to decision-making areas? How can we get players to make better decisions under pressure? How can we get players to make potentially quicker decisions? And I'm not just talking about, you know, fancy gimmicks like the brain gym and stuff like that. It's got to be contextual. And I think there's got to be... You know, we, we've got to look at what's actually being delivered in our football. And th- this whole thing about this this challenge hypothesis is that learning will only take place if you keep challenging individuals up. So and I think that's the difference between deliberate practice and training. So many, many players, they get to their, you know, they'll get to, to, to 18, 19, 20, and they stop improving because they just train. They just go to, go, go to, you know, the professional players, they go and train. But the best ones, the Ronaldo's that take the game on another level, it's about deliberate practice. And it, it's about exposing themselves to higher levels of difficulty and challenges, whether that be change the way that Cristiano has his free kick, whether it's working on a new skill, whether it's coming from the, playing outside to inside or whatever, it's about challenging themselves. And, uh, I mean, I, I'll go back to, I think, Ryan Giggs around when he was around in his 35th year, which you know, he had a bit of a purple patch, and he went from playing in an outside position to, to central midfield. Uh, and again, the best players will, will, will get thrown into that. Uh, the challenge is great, and then, and then he thrives because he finds a way to be very, very successful. He doesn't necessarily rely on his speed to, to beat fullbacks, but what he will rely on is his quick thinking and the ability to get away with people. So... I'm sure there's going to be a lot of lot of research over the next five, ten years in this area of maximizing learning, problem solving, you know, just what kind of visual cues do we pick up on? I'm sure on the back end of that, technology will expand. I'm not saying that it's about virtual reality or um or, or any of them kind of kind of tools, but I'm sure that there's going to be tools available in the next five to ten years that that really kind of target this area of stimulating you know, stimulating decision-making and, 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 I guess, stimulating the brain. At the moment, how do you create problem solvers? Um, how do you weave that into the Manchester United curriculum? Yeah, I think I think that's about the, the, that kind of experiential that the player's learning by doing. I think, I think coaching for me is about setting the problem and, and letting the players work it out for themselves. And, and all you're really doing as a coach is nudging, nudging that, the players towards that, that that finding a solution. I think, in essence, what you've got to have, you've, you've got to have a program that, that that has variety in what you do. 
there's got to be times when you know you manipulate the, the pitch sizes so for example we know that during small sided games there's more decisions to be made you have to make quicker decisions so you're manipulating uh, the areas of the field there you take that into bigger areas and it, you know there's work on transitions and finding space and and seeing where they are so I think it's about having a, a program of variety where players are exposed to different stimuli I mean and that comes back to the, the, the challenge hypothesis if you do the same training every day you know you, you're going to hit a plateau in performance so it's ensuring that like I said before there's there, there's different stimulations there's there's different scenario planning. So there'll be a day a week where it is about problem solving. So it's 11 v 11, uh, or it might be 11 v 10. So one, one, one team is a 20 minute session. Go and work it out. You're, you're a team that's 10. You're playing against an 11. You're one nil up. And there's a scenario there, you know, you've got to prevent the other team from scoring a goal. So I think it's giving, giving the players an opportunity really to practice that decision making in training that then they can take into, in, 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 into, into competition. But you can't get that, James. If, like I say, if it's the same training day in day out. To, to answer your question, it's more about manipulation of of conditions. It's about you know the whole approach, where it's, it's constraints. It's a constraints led approach. And I think really here, I think we've always been we've always been pretty strong with that. In the, the, let the players play. Let the players work it out for themselves, and and give them different challenges to and different scenarios to do that. And like I said before, it may not be all, always working on good, 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 good pitches and stuff. So that in itself is, is another stressor really to add to the situation where if it's an uneven surface, you've got, you've got to focus on the ball a lot more and it's control the ball. And it may well be when you plan on bad surfaces that you, know, you don't take too many touches and you plan the, the opponent's half. But it's different scenario planning. I, I think that's one one big push that that certainly we, we we've done really well at Manchester United. It's been a it's been a good big part of what we do and we'll continue to do that. The last question that I have is related to upcoming challenges that sports science practitioners are going to face. Uh, I know that you touched upon this in that catapult talk. What areas do you see that sports scientists are going to run into new challenges that perhaps you didn't face when uh, you started back in, in, in the nineties um, coming into this profession now? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I think I was very, very fortunate that I started at a time, James, that uh, there wasn't a lot of sports science throughout the Premier League and football in general. I mean, what we had back in back in the, my early days was really a Scandinavian mus- model from Paul, Paul Borsum and Jens Bangsbo that, that was really prevalent at the time in, in Scandinavian Europe. So I was really, really fortunate to, to, to really be to come into the industry in its infancy. I, I don't really envy any you know young budding sports scientists coming into industry at the moment that that, that saturate with practitioners and and it's very very competitive i mean year on year i think sports science is now the most popular degree degree course uh, in england universities with fifteen thousand students graduating per year and that's the thing that that steve ingham talks about uh so well in some of his podcasts so it's really really competitive so one the level of competition is, is is really really high. I think the, the opportunities to get your first foot on a ladder 
is very, very difficult. And my, one of my advices to, to, to people that want a foot on the ladder is, is just keep keep writing to people and keep writing back and, and keep knocking on doors. You know, try and get a mentor that's in the game. So that, that's one advice I can give to young budding sports scientists. I think beyond that, from a technical perspective, when when I was first exposed really to, to what sports science was all about, we, we didn't have a, a, a huge reliance on technology and numbers and data. So we had to really think through the, the the coaching process and the training process, and really have a keen eye for 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 individual athletes. And I think that's something that how we make decisions, James. I think you know, as a sports scientist, as a fitness coach, has probably shifted from intuition to data to data driven driven decisions. And I think there's a danger there. By all means, you know, I'm I'm somebody that really really supports the use of technology and data and, and, and GPS and, and so on and so forth. But what I always try and do is, 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 is keep a level, you know, a level head in how I use that data. So, for example, you know, if we're making a decision on player load, you know, you know this whole red flag generation that we've got now is that, you know, a, a player's exceeded his, his, his planned load, so you have to rest him. You know, I, I think sometimes you have, to, you have to use your intuition and mitigate that level of risk through for years of craft knowledge the flip side of that it's very difficult to to, to i guess uh, learn that craft knowledge if you're only ever relying on, on data data driven decision making that's a challenge and i think you know so my advice to sports scientists will be really is that get a grip of the numbers monitor and record everything you can but don't ever really ignore that human that human component to, to the individual athlete so whether that's from a I guess a wellness, a wellness perspective, you know, RPE loads and so on and so forth. I think it's, let's not get carried away with that. Let's use it as another area of source of information to support a coach-driven decision, as opposed to be that driving the coach's decision. And I think that's the, the the big challenge for me now. And I guess the the other area around that, James, is that, and I guess this comes back to my earlier point around. Big departments having specialists. My my big advice to to anybody really wanting to get a leg up in the industry will be be exposed, albeit even at a lower level, a lower level team, but be exposed to the whole range of uh, of sports science and fitness and, and performance analysis. And I think that's where I was really really fortunate in my formative years. My first job at Coventry, I, I did some match analysis. I, you know, I filled up the drinks. I gave nutrition advice. I did some S and C, albeit not very good, but I did some S and C work. I did the field-based work. We did the monitoring, so it gave me this whole generic, you know, experience. And I think then, once you've got that generic experience, then you may want to specialise in a certain area because what that does for an individual practitioner, it makes you more employable. It gives you a wider skill set. It's not a narrow skill set, and it allows you to work. In a number of different environments, I think that that's the other thing around that is that if you've only had that Manchester United experience and worked at Man United, you know you go to a club that haven't got the resources at Man United, and and you've got to make you know you, you've got to be really creative in, in 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 how you do things. So be exposed to you know turning up with a, a crappy gym or, or 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 limited equipment and make the most of what you got. So there are some challenges. In a nutshell, it's about levels of competition are really, really high. What's going to be your competitive advantage as an individual practitioner? 
uh, and I get hundreds of CVs uh, per year. And invariably, I always look for you know people that, are, that have got coaching experience and delivery experience first and foremost. Uh, look at the character because I think we can develop the skill thereafter. So the level of competition's up. I think the way that the systems have evolved, I think you've got to be careful in your decision-making. And I think it's to grow it intuitively. And I guess the other thing is expose yourself to, to, to different environments because you don't just want the same same experience. Dr. Strowick, I really want to thank you for uh, coming on today uh, to discuss a bunch of things from youth athletic development to you see as uh, future challenges for budding sports scientists. I, I greatly appreciate it. Cool. Lovely. Great talking to you. Really enjoyed it, James. Really, really good. Thank you very much. As episode 100 comes to a conclusion, I want to reflect on the last year and a half. In particular, I want to thank all the individuals that listen and share the episodes on a weekly basis, who continue to seek to become better practitioners. I also want to thank my current sponsors, Simply Faster, and all previous sponsors, such as Omega Wave, VOD Performance, and SkinTech, for believing in the show and providing support. Because of this show, I've met so many outstanding individuals in this field that I can now call friends, such as Michael Macri, Adam Ringler, Will Abbott, and Tony Joel. I look forward to providing quality interviews with practitioners found throughout the world and in a variety of sports in the coming years. If you don't already follow me on Twitter, please make sure to do so. The Twitter handle is at Historic Perform, and I'll see all of you next week.